It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's edition comes from South Africa. When Cyril Ramaphosa took over as president of the country in 2018, there were high hopes that he could reverse a decade of social and economic decline. But four years into his presidency, many South Africans are disappointed. The country's still struggling with massive unemployment, crime, corruption and power cuts. My guest this week is the South African writer and political activist Songezo Zibi. So, what would it take to turn South Africa around? In 1994, a historic moment in South Africa was watched all over the world. The swearing-in of Nelson Mandela as president of South Africa finally brought to a close the horror of the apartheid era. Out of the experience of an extraordinary human disaster that lasted too long, must be born a society of which all humanity will be proud. Mandela was the leader of the African National Congress. Almost 30 years later, the ANC is still in power. But these days, it's a much diminished organisation. Jacob Zuma, Mandela's former ANC colleague, served as president of South Africa from 2009 until 2018. But he left office in disgrace and was arrested for corruption last year, an event that sparked riots across the country. Looters continued to ransack shopping malls and protesters clashed with police in several areas of South Africa on Tuesday. Violence triggered by the jailing of former President Jacob Zuma has evolved into an outpouring of anger over persistent poverty and inequality 27 years after the end of apartheid. President Ramaphosa pledged to clean up the corruption of the Zuma years. But earlier this year, he too was accused of corruption after the mysterious discovery of, it's alleged, millions of dollars in cash stuffed into sofa cushions on his private game farm. President Ramaphosa has questions to answer on several fronts after he confirmed that a robbery did take place at his farm in Limpopo in 2020. Former spy boss Arthur Fraser is saying four million US dollars was stolen. That's around 61 million rand. Disillusionment with Ramaphosa has led to a pretty downbeat atmosphere in South Africa, as I discovered last week when I visited Johannesburg and Cape Town. But at the same time, there's a surge of new opposition parties and politicians determined to give the country a fresh start. One of the most interesting figures is Songezo Zibi. He's just published a book called Manifesto, A New Vision for South Africa, in which he calls on the country's professionals to re-engage with politics. Zibi even boldly states that he might one day run for president himself. So when I met Songeze Zibi in Johannesburg last week, I started by asking him what he thought is the biggest problem facing South Africa. 
The biggest issue is the economy, specifically as it relates to jobs, because we have 36% unemployment, but youth unemployment is north of 60% in South Africa. So that's the first thing. I think the second issue is directly related in many ways, which is crime. People are feeling unsafe. And in the focus groups we do, they refer to the criminals as kids which means the people who perpetrate the crime are from within the same community. And the third is corruption. People complain about corruption a lot, and specifically that the president hasn't dealt with it in the way that he said he would. And those things, as you say, there's a connection between crime and unemployment, and presumably between unemployment and corruption. I mean, the levels of unemployment you mentioned are absolutely staggering. How did South Africa get to this state that there are just no jobs? The ANC in the Jacob Zuma era, destroyed institutions. And institutions are nothing more than the corporate capability to get things done. So we are unable to get things done within the public sector. So you've got a private sector investment which can be unlocked, but you don't have the enabling mechanisms in the state to make it work. So that's the first thing. The second thing, in my view, is that the orientation of the ANC is incongruent with how a modern economy works should work. And also just the economy that we have. The interventions are for an economy that they wish we had, but we don't actually have. So what are they getting wrong? What are they trying to do that's not working? To give you some specific figures from the most recent quarterly labor force survey, if you don't have a post-school qualification, the unemployment rate is north of 90%. If you have a post-school qualification, that drops to 50%. So already you, you can see the training that gets offered is for people with post-school qualifications. There are people who really fall between the cracks. So that's the first. The second, I think, is that we just need to work with the economy that we have in the sense that the ANC has got a big industrial society conception of the economy where people go into work at eight o'clock and they come out at five o'clock and they work in big factories and that sort of thing. The sectors that we really need to focus on, given the skills deficit we have, are the agri-sector, it's tourism, and so on, which would give us better labor absorption. But they don't seem to get those kind of equations. Why not? I mean, they're not that complicated. They're not, Gideon, but you've got to remember that in South Africa, we don't have the revolving door that developed democracies and economies have between the public and private sectors where people work in both. So ANC politicians have never worked in the real economy. So they genuinely don't understand. Even when they're trying to do it well, they conceive it in a, in a bad way. The second thing is that they're very suspicious of the idea of unlocking private capital. Because in the old pre-1990s Cold War era, private capital was an enemy. <laughs> and so you've got to be suspicious of these guys and kind of keep them in check and make sure that if there's to be any investment at all, it's got to come from the state. But the state can't be everywhere all the time and it can't invest everywhere either. You need to unlock private capital. And we've got lots of it in South Africa, not just the possibility of foreign direct investment. And meanwhile, the infrastructure obviously is crumbling most strikingly with these big power cuts that you had really in the last month. I gather the lights are on as we speak in Johannesburg, but that you were having power cuts of up to nine hours a day. Yes, yeah, we get up to nine hours in a 24-hour cycle, power cuts. And that's just indicative of this problem I just explained, because the idea of unlocking private capital to bring 
renewable generation on stream is being opposed within the ANC by people who've made investments in the coal sector. And those people have a fear that if the country transitions too fast into a renewable energy scenario, then they'll be out of pocket. So you've got these vested interests which are militating against a faster transition. You also have an ANC that does not know how to articulate the length of the transition, the country's energy mix and so on. Our integrated resource plan for energy provision, which is a 50-year plan, is supposed to be updated every two years. We get it right about every six or seven years. So by the time another one comes, it's out of date already. And presumably, though, to get to a stage where you're having power cuts of that length, it must have been a massive failure of maintenance over a very long period and also a failure to invest in new power facilities. It's mostly the second problem. I know that for the longest time, the ANC for fear of losing one or other election, emphasized the need to keep the lights on, which means you skimp on your major maintenance so that you don't have too many power plants out of commission. Mm -hmm. That costs the country a lot. So there is a backlog of maintenance that basically needs to be untangled. The second is the building of new generation capacity. It doesn't have to be coal. But we've just fallen behind because just on approving the renewable energy licenses alone, we take an inordinately long amount of time as if we're not in a crisis. So there seems to be a lack of appreciation of how fast you need to move. And so how do the different sectors of society exist in this kind of situation? I mean, people say, I don't know whether it's, it's a fact or a factoid, that South Africa is the most unequal country in the world. No, it is a fact. The Gini coefficient is recognised by the World Bank, IMF and others as being the worst in the world. And that's because you, you really have some fabulously wealthy people here, not out of listed assets like serious dollar billionaires and so on who can compete in other parts of the globe. But you also have a concentration of high-income earners who are around Johannesburg, Pretoria and Cape Town. But those people, there's a congruence between that and their influence over the economy through investments, through professional qualification, big managers and so on. And then remember that statistic I gave you around who the unemployed are mm. and what the education deficit is. So unless you solve that problem at the bottom, you're always going to have this inequality. And so the top level of people, presumably they have their own private generators, their own private security, healthcare, so they can sort of exist in a failing state. Yeah, let me tell you something else. They are also now offerings for private uh, fire engines. So that's how much the state is being substituted in South Africa because it is failing. Mm. And for the people who don't have the ability to buy their way out, I mean, if you're part of these 50% unemployed, how do people survive? It's really difficult. I mean, in my family, I support at least two people at one or other point during the month because they rely on part-time work, which you could get or not. And so they can't build themselves a home. It's really difficult to look for a job because they need to pay for taxes and so People are battling to survive. They've just got enough money for food and maybe one meal a day. And um, that situation is untenable. So what's going to happen? I hope that a combination of things will line up. That is, that the ANC goes below 50% in 2024.
That's the next election. That's the next election. And secondly, that the coalition that takes over from the ANC isn't as chaotic as what we've seen in the big cities uh, like Durban and uh, Pretoria. That will have the effect of removing the really destructive forces in the ANC out of the equation. So the ANC you've given up on? Because I think outside South Africa, although people attempted to see Zuma as an aberration, but the ANC is still basically a kind of noble organisation that led the liberation struggle that can be rescued, but that's kind of not your view. No, it's not. I mean, the heritage is historical fact, and we can't do away with it, and we shouldn't. What we must not kid ourselves on is the ANC being the future. It's not. It's incapable. It lacks the societal credibility to build a coalition that can have a consensus on what we should do next. And most importantly, it genuinely doesn't have the intellectual capacity to do what needs to be done. It just doesn't, even when it tries. Because, as you say, these people are professional politicians, they've never done anything else. Many of them would blend in with the unemployed if they were not full-time politicians. And so how do people like that get selected if they don't have any abilities? Is it a kind of tribal thing? or Not at all. It's because the people that have the capability have gradually withdrawn from politics over the years. I mean, there still are some, but they're seen as people who are fighting a losing battle. So they're really capable, have checked out of politics. But you also got to see that in the context of what happened when Jacob Zuma came in, there was a very strong anti-intellectual and anti-capability sentiment in the African National Congress, which was equated to elitism, snobbishness, which it wasn't. There was a term, clever blacks, who were people basically were asking all the tough questions and insisting on a bit of rigor. Those people were teffed out. And so with that, you had a loss of capability from the ANC, which actually used to have serious intellectual capital before. Can that be turned around, though? I mean, I suppose you don't see much sign of it being turned around. No, it can't, because... The people that replace that capability are now entrenched. Right. <laughs> They're standing at the door. Right. And and Ramaphosa didn't come in and say, OK, get away from the door. I want to bring the good people back. No, he can't because, remember, he relies on those guys manning the door for his own election. Right. So you see the vicious cycle. I know people blame him for not doing that, but I know that it's also extremely difficult. Because these are people who insist on being part of the decision-making. And I guess they should, because they're in the leadership of the organization at different levels. And has there been any accountability for the Zuma years? I mean, he's kind of meant to be on trial, isn't he? But it keeps being deferred and so on. Yeah, no, there's been very little accountability. I mean, our criminal justice system is slow. But when it comes to prosecuting people who are involved with corruption... It's exceptionally slow. Has Ramaphosa put a stop, at least, to the old looting of the state? Because now, of course, he's facing accusations of corruption after they found cash literally stuffed down the back of a, a sofa. Look, the looting on an industrial scale has has seriously tapered off. It, it, that partly informs the problems he's experiencing within his own party because the, the taps have been closed. What happens to more junior politicians who do the same within the party, they get shot Actually, literally shot. Literally, they get shot, yeah. They get killed. You mean, so at the local level, the corruption is so entrenched that if you try and stop it, they'll kill you? Yeah, they kill you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, the office of the Auditor General uh, sometimes loses people to killing. 
because someone doesn't want them to uncover wrongdoing at municipal level or at provincial level. And so, so it really is deeply entrenched. What you've got to understand is that the ANC has morphed into a criminal organization. The ANC practices that kind of corruption. And so you can't clean up the criminal organization and it remains standing. Any attempt to deal with the corruption would collapse it as a natural organic consequence of cleaning it up. So no hope there. So what hope do you see in the opposition parties? You you said earlier that you think the one prerequisite for change is that the ANC falls below 50% in the 2024 election. Who do you see coming up? Because the economic freedom fighters, the Malema party, are very statist, very leftist. I would imagine they would make some of those problems worse. The Democratic Alliance, the DA, or the new party led by Herman Mashaba, what do you think? So it's much less the who and more the what. I believe that what we need, and there's huge appetite for it at the moment, is a broad coalition brought together by common values and principles, common priorities, and consensus on how those priorities are going to be tackled. That would take the shape of a combination of some political actors, the civil society organizations, but also community and other groups. It's a difficult proposition to put together, but I think South Africa now, since the early 1990s, does have a history of coalitions moving together for change. Let's now get to the who. The who obviously doesn't come from the African National Congress. I also don't think that person or that group of people can come from the opposition parties because they are not trying to build a coalition either. But I think building that coalition, that broad coalition, not necessarily to contest an election, but behind an idea is a necessary first step. You mentioned the things that that are concerning people. It's very striking to me the extent of concern about illegal immigration, that people seem to be putting a lot of their frustration and anger on the idea that all these foreigners have come into the country, are taking the jobs, are behind the crime and so on. How much of a real problem is illegal immigration and where could this debate go? So in South Africa, in some townships, in a lot of townships, we have lots of vigilante killings, really gruesome killings done by community members. The reason that happens is because people have lost faith in the police. The same thing is true of the immigration system. So what you're having is absent of private service providers that the elites have got access to. The poor just do it for themselves. But when you think about it, land invasions where there's no demarcation of land for residential because the state is weak, vigilante killings in the case of localized crime, and xenophobic sentiment. And there are two reasons for the xenophobic sentiment. It's the unemployment and the crime. And nobody really seems to have any firm idea on how many illegal immigrants there are because the system's so broken. Yeah, it's not just the system, it's the borders that are porous. So we genuinely don't know. You know, the running joke is on each of our border entries, there is a gate, but there's no fence. <laughs> which is, which I mean, it's an exaggeration, but true in many ways, right? So if you can't document who comes in and out, you've got a problem. I guess. I mean, it's a very bleak source of comfort, but it is a reminder that for all these terrible problems we're discussing, 
for a lot of people in Southern Africa, South Africa remains the magnet, the place that is more functioning, presumably despite the high rate of unemployment, these people can find jobs. Yeah, look, Gideon, there are three reasons why I left my corporate job to do the work that I do, which is to work with civil society, to try and build a coalition, basically, to see if we can't have a better and better informed conversation about our future. The first is that I have children, <laughs> three children. They're young. I have a genuine fear that they might not have opportunities in the future. So that's the first one. The second one is that I love my country and I really wouldn't like to see it fail. The third is that if South Africa fails, the rest of the region is in very serious trouble in terms of just the socioeconomic metrics and just the survival of democracy in the region as a whole. We have to arrest that decline. And I think we're at the point where, for various reasons, there are multiples more people now who realize the situation is urgent and we must do something than there were five years ago. And that's a good thing because it means we can start doing something. But you say if South Africa fails, the whole region's in trouble. But one of the sort of disappointing aspects, I guess, of post-apartheid South Africa is many people saw South Africa as the obvious regional leader, you know, this relatively dynamic, advanced economy. And South Africa doesn't seem to have taken that role. In fact, in your book, you say South Africa has a morally bankrupt foreign policy. What did you mean by that? It's morally bankrupt because it is recently, and by recently I mean the last decade, decade and a half, been informed by sentiment and basically it's narrow interest in terms of the ANC's ideological and political interests or even just the personal interests of politicians. Give you a very specific example. Some years ago, we lost a number of young men in the Central African Republic in a firefight with the Seleka rebels there. To this day, it's still unclear what they were doing there without any kind of logistical support, without the requisite military intelligence support and so on. And they died. And it was just indicative of the amoral, transactional manner in which we've conducted foreign policy, supporting Putin in effect in Ukraine while claiming to be neutral, but using Kremlin talking points for, for what to do, denying that there was a crisis in Zimbabwe all those years ago. Well, there was. And that crisis is now here. And some South Africans are trying to kill those very Zimbabweans who come out of a crisis that supposedly didn't exist. So we, we've kind of done this over the years, which I believe has cost us a lot of friends and has cost us uh, credibility across the world. And um, I'm not sure how or when we're ever going to get it back. And what drove that? I mean, you know, half my podcasts in the last six months have been about Russia, Ukraine, etc., etc. And there's a reflecting a very European point of view. Why do you think the ANC leadership, to use your words, supported Putin? You would think that if we, as most of us South Africans, support the Palestinian struggle, which is about occupation and displacement and so on, they would naturally then have the same sentiments towards the Ukrainians because they're going through the same thing, right? Mm. But they don't. So that's the amoral bit. And then there is the bit which explains the rest of the reasoning, which is the ANC's senior politicians genuinely live in 1987 
when the Cold War was still raging and the Soviet Union was still a thing, shaky but still a thing, and the idea of countries that were previously in the geopolitical axis of the Soviet Union aligning with the big enemies in the West is seen as aggression. And therefore, Putin is justified in feeling threatened by the West because the West is inherently bad. Now, of course, that makes no sense because our biggest trading partners are from the West, right? Apart from China, the single biggest trading partner. Culturally, South Africans are more married to the West. They travel more to the West. We buy their goods. We sell our goods to them and that sort of thing. They completely forget all of that. So in a sense, it also, as a last point, betrays their ignorance of the world. So, so much to do. I mean, you've written a book called Manifesto. A lot of people say, well, you know, why don't you go into politics? Have you thought about it? No, no. So the Erivonia Circle, which is the think tank that we've started, is a political endeavor. We've made that very clear. One of its purposes is to explore political alternatives that South Africans should explore in the short to medium term. That is 2024 all the way to 2029. 2024 is uh, national elections, 2026 local elections, 2029 national elections again. So it already is a political endeavor. My approach to this is that we need to use the Rivonia Circle to try and build that coalition. If the coalition looks possible and doable, then there is no reason why I wouldn't go into politics myself. I say so in the book, in Chapter 6. But for the moment, you need to do the preparatory work. We need to do the hard work because the problem with South Africa politically and why voters are so cynical is because a big man stands up on a podium and says, I'm going to consult South Africans about forming a new political party, and then they form it, but it's about themselves. And voters are tired of that. And that's why I talk coalition a lot, because I actually think we genuinely need it. You, you need business. <laughs> you need the community and other single interest groups to agree on a set of priorities and say, OK, if we solve these five or six things and we all make a genuine effort to solve them, we can start making an impact on the hundreds of other single issues that we have. OK, last question. Let me make you fantasy president for the day. Somehow you end up leading this country. <laughs> you know, people talk about the first 100 days. What would South Africa need to do in the first 100 days of a government that really wanted to turn this country around? Look, I think the first would be to appoint really capable people into key government positions. We've lost that over the years. I think we need to appoint modernizers. I think we need to appoint people who understand the soft underbelly of South Africa at the same time, who understand the world in which we operate so that we stay with the evolution of the world. So that, that is the first thing, and that, that's about people. The second is we need to just change some institutions or begin the process of changing some institutions. I also make some propositions in the book about what ministries I would get rid of were I to be president, such as the Department of Trade and Industry, which astonishingly has got absolutely no relationship whatsoever with the Department of Foreign Affairs. They work hand in hand in theory, but they've got two ministers who usually have nothing to do with one another. But the political reforms are important because if anything caused us these kind of problems we've had, it is the failure to democratize and to build a democratic culture. So that's the second thing. The third one, on the economy, 
any measure that releases private capital into the economy, of course, within the realm of the law, that is the first thing. And the second thing, a very serious intervention that is investment in what I call a public employment scheme, which focuses on training and skilling people without a high school qualification, because that's 90% of the unemployed. We get some of those things right, I think, within a year or two, you might start seeing a visible difference. That was Songeza Zibi, the South African author and activist, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. And that's it for this week. So please join me again next week. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event. So give your friends something to look at like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.